Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 24, and we're reviewing Jujutsu Kaisen Part 1. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. We are one week out, I think, from the end of 2020, which is super exciting. But even more exciting is all of the hype that's happening around the anime that's out right now i'm watching yashahime and if anyone watched the most recent episode it was a really good episode where the plot finally advances and we get some some og characters uh confirmed and, and back in the fray um if you are watching attack on titan this week's episode which just premiered at the time of this recording like an hour and a half ago was both really boring but also crazy because we're about to, uh, I think, fast forward this show and, and fast forward kind of to all the things that we've been waiting for. I don't know. If anyone's seen this week's episode, it was, it's going to set up something really good. Yeah, I think most of the episode kind of drags on. This feels like a filler episode. But as with the last episode, the reveal at the end is what makes it worthwhile. And I think we'll get a convergence of the storylines of both Marley and Paradis, hopefully in the new year with the coming episode. Uh, I think it's episode five. But yeah, it's overall a very exciting time at this conclusion to the year that was 2020. And if you haven't been listening, we have been doing weekly podcast episodes in addition to our regular um, Strictly Anime schedule where we talk about each new episode of Attack on Titan. Um, so I'm I'm very much looking forward to next week's episode and the podcast we'll have after that because not to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, but um, I think that next week episode is going to give us a lot of what we've been waiting for for quite a long time. And I just, I can't wait. So yeah, if you haven't tuned in, make sure you listen to our Attack on Titan episodes. Because yeah, shit's about to go down. It is. And in that same theme of amazing things happening in anime at the end of 2020, we have today's episode talking about the first half of Jujutsu Kaisen, which I fucking love. The show is so good. Um, I, I thought I'd really enjoy it from what I've been hearing and, and some of the, the trailers and things that I've seen, some of the, the images. But man, this show is so good and I'm so glad I'm watching it. For me, the show is good. I don't think it's great, so I'm not as much on the hype train as a lot of other people are, but I think it mixes a nice dose of comedy and kind of sitcom elements with this battle against evil story. Um, the normie in me kind of compares the show to like Harry Potter, um, where the protagonist is kind of learning about this new world that we know of, of Jujutsu. And he has these sort of horcruxes. If you're familiar with what horcruxes are. Um, Which this... I'm not because I don't watch Harry Potter. <laughs> but yeah. For those of you who, if you know, you know. Um, but yeah, this show kind of incorporates its own horcrux, horcruxes and a like a twisted relationship between the protagonist and the main antagonist. So that part is compelling. But you know, some parts of this first half just kind of fell flat for me. And again, it's 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 a good show, but I just don't think it's great so far. I've said this a lot of times with like the first part of any anime that we watch, so I'm probably sounding like a broken record right now. But 
yeah, that's that's just how I feel for now. Who knows? My opinion will probably change with with part two as it continues to debut in the next coming months. I that's fair. I think a lot of um, a lot of anime they're they're fun to watch in the first half, but things don't really pick up, quote unquote, until the second half. But for me, the, this show is just it's so good, and it's not so much the the actual plot that's I think drawing me in it's everything else around it it's the humor it's the music it's the characters and and each of their their developments their arcs um and I don't know like the OP and the the ending are just amazing it's just like all these other little things I think are really boosting up the actual plot itself I do find the concept of Itadori and Tsukuna kind of being this these obviously two very opposite um characters uh, the protagonist and the antagonist being kind of stuck together and figuring out how to overcome the other person but i don't know yeah this this show has just been so good to me and i i think the humor piece of it it's like campy in the sense that like trigon was very campy with its humor mm-hmm. but it's not like I don't know. How do I explain it? It's not like overdone. I think the the humor always comes in at the right moment and at the right level. And I really, really enjoy that. And I appreciate that because that's not an easy thing to accomplish. Yeah. Like you said, I think there are a lot of like small things that make this show enjoyable. Me, I'm kind of, I guess I would consider myself more of like an overall like big picture person. Um, and so I think that's where it kind of falls short because I feel like even with those small, I know there's a lot of like gags and um, non sequiturs, which make each episode have like a hint of comic relief. Um, but I also think that the show kind of falls into a lot of anime tropes, and that's what's kind of putting me on the fence. And also like the overall lore with curses, while it's it's interesting, um, I just can't find myself getting into it as much as I would with like the lore of Attack on Titan or My Hero or even like Demon Slayer. I would like to know more about it. Like Sukuna knows a bunch of stuff and he even says that humans don't fully understand Jujutsu and and curses and all of that. So I I want to know more. Um, I think that the show, this first half transitioned from following the the main trio um, to kind of focusing very heavily on this this new villain because we didn't really get a true introduction to a villain until maybe about a couple episodes in. And it does feel a little like League of Villains-esque. Um, like mm-hmm. I compare this main villain whose name I don't even remember uh, to Shigaraki. Uh, Mahito. Was it? His name's like Mahito. Mahito. Okay, yeah, yeah. The other guy's Ghetto. Yeah, the samurai looking guy. Yeah. So... Mahito, and I'm probably going to forget that too, to remind me, but Mahito um, feels like Shigaraki and this whole thing just kind of feels like the League of Villains. So the concept of the villains themselves bores me. Um, I hope it goes into a different direction that just doesn't feel like another My Hero Academia thing. But I still do like kind of the the challenges that Itadori and his his classmates are up against. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So I'm not totally putting off kind of like the the overall or the main plot of the story. I just think that I want to see more from this band of villains. They just seem kind of flat to me. Yeah, like I said, it this kind of for, to me feels like a a rehash of other shonen anime that we've watched. And I guess what I'm trying to find is like what's going to make this show stick out a little bit more. Um, whether or not that happens in the second half of the season. We'll see, but yeah, for now, we'll be discussing the first half. 
So right off the bat, I want to talk about the opening and the ending because I love one of them and I, I don't hate the other one, but I'm just kind of like, I'm I'm over the other one. Um, the opening to me is phenomenal. Like, I, I don't know what it is. It's just so good. The song is absolutely amazing. It's such a perfect fit for both the show and for the opening itself. And the OP is just really well done. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, if you like see this, like a picture or a video that you just love to watch it, you could just sit there and stare at it or watch it over and over again. This is one of those OPs where I could probably just sit there and watch it on repeat for like two hours and still love it by the end of it. Yeah, for those of you who are curious, the opening song is called Kai Kai Kitan by Eve. And that's probably the part of the opening that I like the most. Like the visuals are great. It's looks like stylized versions of the characters that have appeared on the show. But yeah, that song is a banger. And it's for sure going on my anime Spotify playlist. Um, I guess visually, the one thing I do like about the opening is the random panda that runs on the roof. Oh my god, yeah. It's only for a half second, but I think panda deserves a lot more screen time in the opening. Or just something less goofy looking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like everyone else has like these, again, sweeping camera angles of them using their cursed energy or cursed techniques. And this is just a bear. Struggling to, to get j- over the roof. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one other thing I noted about the opening, which was kind of cool. And I don't know if this was intentional. Um, you see one of the one of Sukuna's fingers floating in the water towards the end of the opening which evoked a lot of similarity to when the stone mask dropped in the sea uh, for the opening for jojo part one i Um, could see that yeah whether or not that was intentional um i still think that that's an interesting visual so here's for for me there are some ops out there that are just perfect in every way both visually and musically i think about tank from Cowboy Bebop, like visually and musically, spot on. Mm-hmm. Like 11 out of 10, it's amazing. Then there's others where one of the two are spot on, but the other's still good. It's just not quite like great or perfect. So I think about the opening to Demon Slayer. The song is a 10 out of 10. Like it's it's phenomenal. It's a banger. We, we freak out every time we hear it. The visuals are really, really good, but none of them strike me super... Like super hard. Like I think the only visual in that opening that I think I could stare at forever and ever is when Zenitsu does his his move and he kind of like explodes and launches forward and does kind of that spiral move. That visual is really, really cool to me. But the rest of it's like, it's really good. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy watching it, but it's not something that I want, I'm like raving about. This opening for Jujutsu Kaisen on the other hand, again, the song is phenomenal the visuals, I, I really appreciate that they have a slightly stylized kind of different um, animation style, but of course still very close to the actual show. Um, I just think that all of the shots are really, really cool. It's not super action-filled, maybe a little bit towards the end. It's more just like really quick s- shots of each of the characters, but each shot just looks really well done. Like I think about Kugisaki when she's just walking forward and she looks to her left, but the way that she looks to her left and, and the way that her hair is blowing just looks very clean and nice. I think my favorite part of the whole opening is when Gojo-sensei is on top of that building and they kind of do that that pan 
like a- across the front of him and he's like smiling and his hair is blowing everywhere. It just looks so fluid and so seamless and mm-hmm. so nice. I just want to stare at it over and over again. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know, this um, this anime was produced by MAPPA and it seems like this opening is pretty rotoscoped, but it's not too distracting. Um, you'll know in our Attack on Titan podcast, I kind of point that out with MAPPA is that they use rotoscoping almost too gratuitously. It was awful. I'm mm-hmm. just going to say it. It was awful in like the third, second episode, second episode, right? Mm-hmm. Second episode of Attack on Titan, it was so distracting. But yeah, for this opening, like you barely even notice it if if it if it's actually used. Um, but yeah, just watching these characters move in a different way from the anime, again, that's not too distracting, um, is pretty visually interesting. I have to agree. Like I, I've said on other podcast episodes, I hate rotoscoping. I don't mind it when I don't realize it, realize that it's there. Um, and I think in this opening, like I, I think you can tell, it's it's pretty much a lot of rotoscoping, but it's done very very well because it's in short moments during high intensity action sequences or in just like a quick like three second clip of something or a shot of something, and that's how you. To me, not that I'm an expert or anything, but that's how you do rotoscoping well. It makes it look so fluid, so nice, so visually stunning. But it doesn't take you out of the fact that you're watching an anime. You're not like, ugh, what was that? It looks great. I don't know. I just, I could rave on and on about this opening. I think it's fantastic. I'm a little sad because I'm like, well, I think with the second half, they're likely going to give us a new opening. I'm hoping it's just as good, but I don't know. We'll see. I think I'm going to miss this one a lot if they do change it. Although they do, I think you mentioned this, they do make slight changes to the opening as the episode as the episodes move on, like they'll add different visuals or different scenes. Um, one in particular, I think you mentioned was uh, Gojo. Um, in the original opening, he is about to reveal what's under his blindfold, but then it cuts. And then later on, when you do see that, it reveals his full eye. Yeah. Um, so a lot of, I guess, blink and you'll miss it uh, visuals if you don't watch through the openings. And one thing I have to go back and look at is I think that very last shot where everyone's at the picnic, I think they add everyone as those characters are introduced. Because by the last like episode that came out, um, where are we at, 12, 13, I was like, were there that many people in this picnic scene in the first couple of episodes? So that's when I'm going to have to go back and confirm, but that could be another another spot where they added some, some things later on. Mm-hmm. As for the ending, I have kind of the opposite opinion of the ending. Um, I very much appreciate that they use a completely different animation style and really just a total, totally different feel for the ending. Um, I think the opening caters to the more like action-oriented and serious parts of the show, and the ending kind of aligns with more of the the humor that we get in the show. But I just, I, I guess, I'm not as thrilled about it because while the opening did rotoscoping very, very well to the point where it was almost unnoticeable this ending was like watching just dance and it made me like go crazy i i I was like what am i looking at right now like i want to like it so bad i love the style i love the song i love the concept of them kind of in their casual clothes just being themselves but my god the rotoscoping i feel like i'm playing just dance yeah this is where you can tell mappa just really loves rotoscoping for some reason the style, yeah, it's a lot different from what you'd expect um, throughout the show because it's very vibrant colors and 
the characters are all sketched out, like you said, in like their casual clothing. Um, so it doesn't really fit at all. But I would say of the opening and the ending, I prefer the ending song a little bit more just because it has like that nice funky jazz theme. Um, for those of you who are not sure, uh, who are curious, the song is Lost in Paradise by Ali and Aklo. But yeah, that's a that's a song that I can definitely groove to um, on my Weeb playlist. So now that we have the opening and ending discussion um, out of the way, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis for the show. Jujutsu Kaisen, also known as Sorcery Fight, is the 2020 anime adaptation of a manga series written and illustrated by Geiji Akutami and produced by MAPPA. The series follows eccentric high schooler Yuji Itadori as he navigates the world of curses and becomes a vessel to its biggest baddie. In episode 1, Ryomen Sukuna, we begin in media's res as a blindfolded man tells restrained high school protagonist Yuji Itadori that he is destined to die. The end. JK, we follow Yujiyo in the events leading up to his abduction as he participates in his occult club and acknowledges his grandfather's dying wish for him to help others. Later, the mysterious spiky-haired Fushiguro tracks Yujiyo in search of a cursed object, a severed finger belonging to Ryomen Sukuna, a powerful supernatural cursed being. Realizing that it is in the occult club's possession, they rush to the school to destroy the object, which has descended into cursed chaos. Yujiyo eats the finger to save Fushikushi and becomes possessed by Sukuna, who easily incapacitates the curse but intends to go postal. Yujiyo, however, regains control of his body, much to Fushikushi's surprise, but the latter prepares to exercise him anyways. When I was watching this first episode, I, I just kept thinking, I love what I'm watching, but what the fuck is happening right now? I was so confused because they just throw you in. I mean, they, they give you very little lead up. They're just like, okay, it's happening. Like, you're in this now and, and we're we're heading forward. But I, I really enjoyed it. And I, right off the bat, you got a sense that there is some really great balance of humor and action in this show. Um, I wasn't expecting this much humor because from the visuals that I've seen of this show, like it, it all looked very dark and intense and action oriented. So I, I was pleasantly surprised that there was so much humor. And and Itadori is just like a lovable character in my eyes. You always get those main characters that are pretty naive, pretty, I don't know, aloof, just always thinking positively. But Itadori has this like really nice um, kind of carefree attitude while also caring very much at the same time. So he's not carefree in the sense that like it's annoying because you don't feel like he's really committed to what's happening. Like he actually does care, but he also knows how to let things roll off his shoulder and, and keep moving forward. And I got that sense from him like immediately from this first episode. I think again, it's, it's, it's a show that I'm already hooked on and I was hooked probably from this episode one, which is, which is pretty rare. Yeah. The thing I like about Yuji as a protagonist is that a lot of the ones that I guess we've seen more recently, um, I always view them as they're always unsure of themselves and very timid. Case in point, like Midoriya and uh, I guess Bam from Tower of God. And Tanjiro's kind of like that, but not too much. But Yuji is a lot more confident in in himself and carries himself a lot better than those other protagonists. Um, just, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Like he has this confidence without being overly confident. And he has this carefreeness without being overly carefree. Um, and he has this like caring side to him without being like too caring. Kind of like what you said, like Bam or 
like Tanjiro. Not that Tanjiro is like too caring, but sometimes it it can be just at that line. And like you said, like this episode just kind of throws you into the thick of it. Um, but even as Yuji is first exposed to this world of like jujutsu and curses, um, he doesn't step back and question whether or not he is up to the challenge. Um, I guess the one part I kind of figured that was where he literally jumps through like the school's, I'm assuming like second floor window to take down the curse because that's how determined he was to to save his classmates uh, from the occult club. Yeah, physics in this show are kind of not a thing, <laughs> and we learned that very quickly. Um, it's always when you watch a new anime, you kind of kind of you have to kind of gauge what level of realism they're going to give you. And I know that there's always like you know some level of unrealism. Is that if that is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. Yeah, or surrealism. Surrealism. There you go. Um, but yeah, I think they they made it very clear from the get go that. Itadori has some abilities that are what normally would be considered superhuman, but in this show, I guess no one no one seems to notice. And one other thing I noted about Yuji, uh, obviously, like his grandpa's dying in this, and it's interesting that the grandpa's about to tell Yuji more about his parents, but instead just tells him to or gives him the directive to to help people so he doesn't end up like his grandfather did. The other thing is. Like, Yuji mourns him once he passes away, but then he's very nonchalant once he encounters uh, Fushiguro and he asks him about the cursed object. It's almost like he forgot that his grandpa passed away. Yeah, even though his grandpa's dying words stick with him very close and he's determined to keep that promise, it, it was kind of odd. And that's something that overall I notice about this show is that the pacing at certain points is like move, I don't know, it moves very, very quickly. And mm-hmm. sometimes to the point where I'm a bit confused and I need to kind of take a moment and, and rethink what just happened to understand like where we're at and, you know, what kind of time skip may have happened or, um, I don't know, I think it's it's the the story being moved forward in a way that allows us to still get the key information but not dwindle too much on stuff that like may have been a little more lengthy in the manga perhaps. Yeah, um, the pacing was... It took a while to get used to, but again, you just you just go along for the ride. Um, two more things I wanted to note with this episode: the scene between Yuji and the gym teacher um, was like the first hint of like getting that sitcom feel. Especially, I think they're competing like track and field events, and Yuji launches I think whatever that ball is that you use in track and field, and it beats the gym teacher's score, and then the teacher's just frozen in place behind. Yuji as he's conversing with his classmates. I just thought that was a really funny scene to add in. Yeah, it definitely, like I said, have, has those Trigon vibes of like the campy humor, the the anime tropes, but still having, being able to switch right into like a very serious, gory scene. Mm-hmm. The second thing was noting some of the similarities that Yuji has to other anime characters. First off the bat, I noticed that Yuji wears red shoes, almost mm-hmm. like Midoriya. Um, he eats the relic or the Sukuna finger and inherits its cursed power, kind of like what Midoriya did with All Might. And then when you see Yuji in his Sukuna form, it reminded me of Kamina from Gurren with his body tattoos. So again, I don't know if there was, that was intentional, but just some things I noticed with Yuji. Moving on to episode two, titled For Myself. 
Yujiro tries convincing Fushikushi that he's no longer possessed until the blindfolded man, Gojo Sensei, shows up and tests Yujiro's control over Sukuna. Which brings us to the first scene from the pilot, where Mojo Gojo tells Yujiro that he was able to suspend his death sentence in order to use him in the quest for all 20 of Sukuna's fingers, of which the Jujutsu sorcerers only possess 6. Mojo, jo Mojo Gojo asks Yujiro to consume all of them in order to kill Sukuna, which will in turn kill Yujiro himself. Not a very delicious last meal, if you ask me. Mojo Gojo invites him to Tokyo Metro Jujutsu School for Witchcraft and Wizardry as one of three first years, including Fushikushi, and Yujiro convinces Principal Yaga and his cursed plushies that he refuses to live with the regret of not being able to stop the King of Curses. The action sequences in this episode, like I think this is where Gojo fights Sukuna, um, just amazing smooth as silk very well done like just executed to a t um and we get more of that as the show goes on but this is just i think studio mappa flexing their amazing animation team and i'm sure there's some rotoscoping in there too which mm -hmm. again if done correctly shouldn't even be noticeable and i don't know it just it was great i i, I love this fight sequence and there's others that i'll talk about too but yeah, they, they started off um, on a really high note with that. And what's funny is that Gojo goes into this spiel about buying um, Kikufuku, like in the midst of this battle. Um, again, just injecting that sitcom feel, or like you said, the campy feel into what would otherwise be a pretty serious moment. Yeah, especially when Fushiguro is kind of freaking out and, and fighting to the best of his ability um against all of the curses at this school he comes in he's like obviously he's the the strongest um the strongest person here because he's totally calm and he only fights Sukuna as kind of like a test um mm -hmm. almost toying with him because he knows that well hopefully that Itadori is going to be able to switch back in what do you say like one minute or something like that yeah I think he was counting right yeah and at the end he's like you know five four three two one um, and then Itadori switches back right on cue. And that's what's interesting about the dynamic between uh, Yuji and Sukuna is it's almost like a Jekyll and Hyde feel uh, to their relationship. And you pointed this out to me. Um, it, there's actually a different voice actor for Sukuna to kind of emphasize that difference between uh, both characters. Um, Sukuna is voiced by the same actor who voices Eraserhead. Yep, Eraserhead, who is also a Bakio from JoJo Part 5, which is funny because Itadori is voiced by... Lifugo from Part 5. And Gojo is voiced by... Bucerati from so, Part 5. So we have a, a Passione reunion happening here in uh, Jujutsu Kaisen. Molto bene. Some things to note here. Um, Yuji eats a second finger of Sukuna in this episode and is still able to control um, the King of Curses. So I think that's two that he's consumed so far. Um, although, as I mentioned, the sorcerers possess six for anyone who's keeping count. So I think that's eight total um, in the sorcerer's possession. Uh, the other thing that was kind of weird is when Yuji introduces himself to the principal. He mentions that he's into girls like Jennifer Lawrence. I don't know, Yuji. Maybe you can aim higher with your with your interests in celebrities or in, in girls, but that's just my own opinion. Maybe he really liked the Hunger Games. 
Yeah, that could be. Um, and then the plushie dolls that are cursed corpses that the principal uses um, resembles kind of like Cohen from Bleach. I didn't watch Bleach. <laughs> I only watched like maybe the first couple episodes, but I, that's what I remember from the show. Um, so that was interesting to see. In episode three, Girl of Steel, Yujio, Fushikushi, and Mojo Gojo pick up the third first year, Nobara Kugisaki, in Harajuku. Mojo Gojo takes them on a tour of Tokyo that consists of one destination, a cursed building to be used as their field test. Yujio and Nobara dispose of two respective curses and team up to take down a sentient cursed holding a boy hostage in the abandoned building. In the midst of the battle, we get backstory on Nobara's wish to move to Tokyo to reunite with her friend Saori after her fellow country bumpkins ostracized her. Mojo Gojo treats the first years to sushi after the field test, and we get a tease that three months later at a cursed detention center, one of these first years is gonna die. So when it comes to Kugisaki's backstory and this other chick, I'm sorry, I forgot her name already, but... Saori. Saori, that the people in her town like harassed her and kind of isolated her just because she was from the city. That's not believable to me. That's super far-fetched. I'm like, there, there's got to be something else here. I hope there's something else here um, that lends to why this all happened and, and why Kugisaki kind of ended up where she is today. Cause I'm like, just because she was from the city, they made fun of this bitch and, and drove her out. Like, that makes no sense to me. Well, you know how country folk sometimes don't like city folk. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, maybe there's something else bigger. At play. I thought it was going to involve, like, again, the world of curses and why they hated her. But I don't know. We'll see. I thought it was going to be something like, I don't know, maybe they found out something about her this chick and and because they found out this thing they decided they didn't like her but i'm like just because she's from the city that's so weird like that just doesn't seem realistic but i don't know we'll see the other thing that um i thought about with this episode is that it's so odd that the the school and just all things jujitsu are infused right in the middle of modern day tokyo slash japan i think it's really really cool um that they kind of have this happening right around like i don't know it's like it's like meshing two worlds that really don't go together and and don't usually coexist um but it it gives me a lot of questions like do people or the the public in general know about curses do they know about jujitsu and and the sorcerers and everything or is it just like kept under wraps i don't know because with this episode when they save that little boy they don't erase his memory or anything. They just let him go home. And he was like in a life or death situation. Like what happens then? I feel like people would be talking about this stuff, right? So wouldn't on some level the general public know about the existence of curses at some level? Yeah, I totally forgot. Like that boy, it never mentioned, the episode never mentions if he does see the curse that's holding him hostage. Um, but they do say, so in the first episode, obviously the the itadori's two classmates can see the curses and fushiguro said that you don't like normal people can't see curses unless they're in a very scary situation where they're experiencing a lot of fear or they're in a near-death situation um and i i would assume the boy did see the curse because he kept telling kugisaki like no i'm not coming out like it's still here or whatever like he kept acknowledging that something was still here and he was too scared to move yeah I guess the way I'm thinking about it, it, it and I'm going to make a lot of references to this other pop culture series, but kind of like Harry Potter rules where 
you know, only certain people, you could call them sorcerers, you could call them wizards, can see these manifestations of curses, whereas I guess the muggles of, of this show um, aren't able to. Maybe they can sense it, um, but that's what makes each group different um, in terms of viewing the world of curses. You see a couple more instances of um, sitcom elements here, especially in the gags for Nobara. Um, when she is in Harajuku, and actually, before I go into that, I just, I like how I can instantly recognize Harajuku Station because they animated that background to a T um, from the last time I was in Japan. Like, again, I love when anime backgrounds are very, very photo accurate in that sense. Um, but yeah, going back to when Nobara is walking around Harajuku, um, there's a recruiter who's trying to attract girls to join their modeling agency or get them for a modeling gig but he refuses to acknowledge nobara that was great um and then you get her pov where she's looking at yuji and fushiguro and it's almost like a heads-up display of her scanning them and analyzing them as like these grotesque or i think she says potato-y figures i love that i think it's it's refreshing at least from a lot of the anime that we've watched recently because normally the the main character the female main character is like beautiful or cute or i don't know sexy and on some level and the fact that they actually came out and said indirectly that she's like not that pretty she's just very average i'm like okay that's cool and then they also went and said the same thing about fushiguro and itadori that at least in her eyes they're also very average people i'm like that's pretty cool i i like that i think that was done very very well with the right kind of humor mm-hmm and then you have the post credits short where they all debate on where to get sushi. It's just a really odd thing to add, but I think it kind of, again, adds that comic relief. And I, it's a question that you also ask about some of these characters. Like, once they've gone through these intense battle sequences, what happens in between, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Well, moving on to episode four, Cursed Womb Must Die. Harry, Ron, and her... I mean, Yujio, Fushikushi, and Obara investigate the womb above the detention center with the timid assistant director, Ijichi, and suspect it could turn into a special-grade cursed spirit. Ijichi tells the trio that they are not to engage the curse but must rescue any survivors and casts a veil barrier around the center to conceal them from the outside world. Inside the center, the trio find another two-story building an instance of a cursed innate domain, and are split up after encountering the special grade curse, which has emaciated many of the detainees. Yujiro resolves to fight the curse despite losing his hand and having no idea what he is doing, until Sukuna swoops in to make quick work of it and obtains another of his fingers. He waits for Yujiro to take back control of his body, but he doesn't. So when they introduce Ijichi, I like the way they did this, and not only him, but I think all the other characters moving forward because they don't like stop and give us like the rundown of who this guy is. He's just there. Like the students already know about him. They already know who he is and what he does. He's just there. He does his thing. And we learn about him and Nanami and all, and all these other characters just through the interactions that Itadori and his classmates are having with these individuals. I, I don't know. Something about that was a little bit refreshing to me um versus like needing like a, a a card at the bottom or something with their name and you know their their height and their title and, and who they're all about like i, I want to learn about them as i experience this show and this is 
I think that they're doing a really good job of giving us these these new characters, making them very relevant right off the bat, but allowing us to discover them on our own. Yeah, in that sense, it doesn't treat the audience as stupid. Like we can just use context clues to figure out who these characters are. And another thing I want to mention about Ijichi, um, the voice actor is Mitsuo Iwata. He does sound like the sleep-deprived provincial exam proctor from My Hero. It's not the same guy, though. But fun fact, it's the same voice actor who did Kaneda Kaneda, in Akira. Is it really? Mm -hmm. Oh, I had no idea. Wow. He's been voice acting for a really long time then. Yeah. But this episode overall, I think, has one of those like fast forward moments that we were talking about before where the pacing just kind of suddenly jumps ahead. Um, and, and it didn't like put me off or anything, but it was surprising. They're not wasting any time. They put them up against a special grade that has one of the fingers right away. They weren't like, you know, kind of trickling us in with some like lower level shit for a couple of filler episodes. They're like, look, here you go. You're going to go up against like a special grade right away and see what this shit is all about. And I like that. It kept me interested. It didn't feel like it dragged on. So while sometimes the pacing, again, can be a little bit too quick where I need to kind of rethink what's happening just to make sure I'm on the same page, I still do appreciate how quickly they are moving because I think this show is only supposed to be 24 episodes. At the same time, it almost feels like the situation in My Hero where you're throwing these, like their first years here, and then you have Class 1A, which is all first years, but they're throwing them into situations that you think they cannot handle. And it's for me, it's very odd, but I, I understand where it's coming from, from a pacing perspective. I think Gojo addresses that, though, kind of in one of the later episodes that he intentionally wanted to put them up against a special grade that he knew would be a bit too much for them because he basically is testing them. Obviously, it's weird because it's a life or death situation, um, but there there's some explanation for that besides just advancing the plot um, to make sure that we fill all 24 episodes. Yeah. But with this episode, we also get more insight into the concept of curses. So they're grown from fear, hate, and regret. Um, that's why the headmaster in the previous episodes said that no sorcerer ever dies without regret. They need those negative emotions to use curses. Um, and Itarore, I think, can, like starts to struggle with that concept. He wants to save everyone. He He's a generally a happy-go-lucky guy. Um, but he's faced with the reality of like, you, you can't save everyone. This, this kid, I think it was like Ozaki or whatever. He's already dead. You can't save him. You, you can't help him. Right. The inmate who's like chopped in half. Well, uh, Tadashi. But I, yeah, maybe his first name was Ozaki. Um, he even wants to, he being Isarori even wants to save his body so that they can give him a proper burial and that's just not realistic and it, it's not something that he ends up accomplishing because Fushigoro is like look we're gonna die like I, I get what you're trying to do here but you're gonna die and, and we need to get out of here alive he also brings up an interesting point that you know what if Itadori saves somebody that later does something bad and it took me a second to realize why he said this it's Fushigoro reflecting on his own choice to save Itadori because now he worries that if he can't control Sukuna that he'll do something bad and it'll be Fushigoro's fault and I think at a later point in that episode um, Fushigoro mentions like if that does happen he needs to be the one to destroy Itadori because it was his choice it's his responsibility so this this whole concept of life and death saving people like what's right versus wrong in a world of negative emotions, fear, hate, regret. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, and it kind of makes Yuji uh, wrestle with, again, the final, I call it directive, but the final um, 
piece of advice that his grandfather leaves him. Because all he says is, like, you need to help people. But he doesn't say that on, like, a certain condition. Like, you can't, like, you need to help people unless you think they're going to kill people in the future. Yeah. And to that same point, you need to help people. But technically, curses are grown from people. It's people that are creating these things through their, their fear and their anger and all of that. So it's like you're helping, I don't know, you're helping the people that have created these monsters in the first place. That's just like a really, really interesting kind of viewpoint. Yeah, people are just evil. <laughs> I'm also glad to see that Itadori is still inexperienced and weak and confused. Um, he even cries at one point in this episode rather than like suddenly being OP. Like we know he's talented. They say in the, the first episode that he is very athletic. He's a track star, blah, blah, blah. And we know he's got potential and he has the will to do things, but he has his limit because he's not been trained and he doesn't kind of know what he's doing here. So it was nice to see him have this moment of weakness because there's sometimes it is frustrating when a main character who's very inexperienced is just so OP and like great at everything for no reason. But then he does have that, I call it the you say run moment um, when he does punch the curse. Which was, again, that was pretty visually stunning to watch. Yeah, where he discovers, like, the the curse power that he can use or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so for some, like, comic relief um, to point out, when Ijichi puts on the PowerPoint presentation of, like, curse grades, and then you have those non-sequiturs where Nobara and Yuji panic, and then they praise the night dog for helping them out while they're in the domain. Um, nice comic relief. Is that where they pet? No, they they pet the dog in a different episode, right? I think so. Uh, there were, I think they might have in this one, but I just remember they were, you know, drawn very cartoony and were just praising him for, for helping them out in whatever that situation was. Oh yeah, that was cute. I like that. But then, the white dog died. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> in episode five, Curse Womb Must Die, Part Two, Hushikushi senses that the curse is dead and finds Sukuna suddenly behind him sukuna rips out yujiyo's heart and consumes the finger he procured intending to hold yujiyo's body hostage the two engage in a very lopsided battle that favors sukuna but fushikushi uses his eight grip technique to retain some closure with yujiyo as he passes away r.i.p we then fast forward to a samurai man being followed by a bunch of curses who implies that yujiyo may not have died Mojo Gojo vowing to kill the Jujutsu higher-ups as he visits Yujiyo's body in a morgue, and the introduction of the second years at Jujutsu Hogwarts, Maki the tool wielder, Inumaki the onigiri speaker, and a fucking panda, who introduced the inevitable tournament arc. This episode had by far my favorite fight scene of this first half. The other ones are fantastic, don't get me wrong, but there was something about this fight between Fushiguro and Sukuna that was so good. It was so cool. It was like, it wasn't that splashy and and like over the top compared to some of these other fights, but just their hand-to-hand combat or like their quick kind of like use of of their curse power um against each other was was really well done and it gave me like mad spike spiegel vibes from cowboy bebop that's what i wrote in my notes yeah like the way sukuna was just fluid and relaxed and dodging every single hit that fushiguro tried to land on him it was great and there's something to be said about a fight scene being this impressive when there's less happening than some of the other fights like again it's just mostly like a, a one-on-one fist fight or kicking fight or whatever the fuck Fushiguro's trying to do with some of the curse 
things coming in towards the the middle um but yeah i just i think they did it so well and i hope there's more fights like this i think it was really great to watch yeah i think this fight stuck out to me as well and i haven't really mentioned my thoughts on a lot of the fights here because to me as visually stunning as they are a lot of them just don't hit the mark for me like it it feels like every other fight but yeah this one stuck out just because of again the rotoscoped combat looked clean and especially when Sukuna launches uh, Kushiguro across, like, the the prefecture. Like, that was pretty neat to see. Like, that was probably enough to kill a regular human. So I don't even know how Kushiguro survived that shit. It's the uh, the physics, man. They, they just disregard all physics and laws of life, I guess. Yeah. I did find it confusing, though, in this episode um, why Itadori couldn't recall Sukuna um, and why it was only until Fushiguro expressed kind of his true thoughts around saving itadori that that's when he was able to regain control i may have just missed it um my assumption was he was itadori was so confused and so lost in the moments leading up to the switch that he didn't have the strength mentally to call back sukuna and then it wasn't until fushiguro again said those things and answered his question as to like why did you save me that that brought him some confidence and clarity um, among all the uncertainty and confusion that he's been experiencing. But honestly, I'm not even really confident in that. I'm not quite sure why that happened. Yeah, I don't know if it was because of the eight grip technique. Um, but that was where, that's one instance where like the lore and how cursed techniques or cursed energy is used in this show is just very confusing. Um, again, it, it's great that Fushiguro got his closure with Yuji, however that worked. But... Yeah, there's no real explanation for how this happens. Hopefully we'll get something a little more concrete um, because it seems to be the only instance so far where Itadori does have difficulty recalling Sukuna. Um, But thinking about the dynamic between those two characters, I think what really hits the mark for me is Sukuna's personality. He's not like this wild, crazy, mindless beast. He's a really intelligent curse who has like a funny a very um, confident personality. Like he, like you said, he's the king of curses and he knows it. And I think the dynamic between his personality and Itadori's very like lighthearted, carefree, like happy-go-lucky attitude is just, I don't know, it's great. I, it's so different. Um, it's kind of one of those things where like opposites attract. Like it just, it, mm-hmm. it melds well together. And I love seeing their interactions um, when, whenever we do get them it's it's few and far between i hope there's more of them but i do like their dynamic one thing i wanted to comment on is like the impact of yuji's sudden death only five episodes um into into this series uh it's kind of reminiscent of spoilers here but Eren's sudden demise in season one of attack on titan because you, you wouldn't expect like a protagonist to just be killed off that easily and like i know later on in the episode um the samurai man which his name is gato implies that like yuji isn't actually dead um but yeah it'll be interesting to see how like impactful like we see that how impactful it is um on the two first years kushiguro and nabara like she's mourning even though she barely knew yuji um and then gojo's obviously pissed off because he thinks like the higher ups were arranging for this death as a way to get back at him. And then he vows to like eliminate the jujutsu bureaucracy 
And that was another thing I had a problem with is it falls into that anime trope of, again, the instance of like the corrupt government or bureaucracy um, that you see in other like anime series. In episode six, After Rain, we get some weird inside out shit as Yu-Gi-Oh confronts Sukuna inside his own body. But it is actually Sukuna's innate domain within the King of Curse's own mind. Sukuna promises to bring Yu-Gi-Oh back to life on two conditions. That Yu-Gi-Oh will hand over his body for one minute when he exclaims, Extension, and that Yu-Gi-Oh will forget this promise. Yu-Gi-Oh refuses to be brought back to life on these conditions, but after Sukuna wins a trial by combat, our noble savior is risen from the dead, having no recollection of their convo. Mojo Gojo tells the morgue doctor, however, to officially claim Yu-Gi-Oh as dead, and plans to train the first year on how to properly utilize cursed energy via a movie marathon. Meanwhile, the samurai man, named Ghetto, tasks the cursed spirit Jogo, aka Captain Magma, with taking down Mojo Gojo, whom he confronts as the latter is on the way to meet with Principal Yaga. The restaurant scene in this episode is a fantastic example of what we talked about earlier, that this show can transition from or blend humor with action and horror. The scene started off very lighthearted and the one waiter was like he could feel he could sense you know the curses although he didn't know what it was and then he quit his job and then it suddenly just transitioned to pure horror without skipping a beat it was seamless i mean these people were bursting into flames just dying left and right and it was it was just it, it transitioned so well like it, it didn't feel like they really flipped a switch it just felt like this is what life is in the show and i think that they continue to do that time and time again, and I really, really enjoy it. I think it's very, very hard to be able to mix humor and horror so well, and I, I definitely applaud them for for their ability to do that. Yeah, that was a crazy scene, especially like they just combust immediately. And in terms of Sukuna's deal with Itadori, on the surface, it seems like a low-risk deal, right? Extension just grants, grants him one minute of control whenever he wants, but he can't kill or injure anyone, and Itadori can't remember the deal. But I think here he's playing the long game to gather up some sort of advantage or learn more about his enemies, um, and I'm curious to see how and when he's going to use this. I was somewhat frustrated, though, because Itadori was so smart in the beginning to not believe him, even when he did have the condition of not killing or injuring anyone. But then he just completely 180'd and got tricked at the end when Sukuna said, um, you know, I'll make these conditions if you win in a fight to the death with me. Like, come on, Itadori, you really think that Sukuna wasn't just playing easy with you this whole time. I mean, it took one sweep of his hand and your head was chopped in half. He should have known better that this is the king of curses and he's just some newbie in the world of jujitsu that he could never have won. But I do like also that they didn't even give him a chance to try. They just immediately made him made him die. It was I think it was very, very realistic in that sense as to their level of abilities. It puts Yuji in his place, I guess. And then later, Gojo-sensei asks if Sukuna made a deal with Itadori. Um, I liked that moment because it really played into the fact that Gojo is not only a strong and skilled fighter, but he's also very smart and intuitive. Like, he he knows his shit. He's he's top dog for a reason. He's, what do they call it, grade one? Yeah. He, he's grade one for, for a reason. And I, I appreciated that they gave us that insight into how he can see things that other people don't pick up on. 
one thing I wanted to point out is that Fushiguro informs the guardian that was looking for her son at the detention center. She, or he lets her, her know that he's passed away and that Yuji had attempted to bring back his body, but he delivers the name tag instead. I just found it interesting that um, Fushiguro ends up fulfilling that wish um, that Yuji wanted to rescue that body during their investigation, where, as you mentioned earlier, like he was originally against what Yuji wanted to do in that case. Um, and then Fushiguro asks the question, like, what kinds of people do you want to save as a jujutsu sorcerer? Kind of implying like he's he's having second thoughts about what he was arguing with Yuji about. And again, with some comic relief, we get Yuji's weird ghost form of where he finds out like cursed techniques are kind of like bred within you genetically. Innate traits. Yeah, innate traits. And then he rattles off all these other like anime moves like Rasengan. That was Kamehameha. great. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like almost fourth wall breaking in a sense <laughs> it just made the the show or, or um that moment feel so relatable because you're like as the audience member you're like oh i know exactly what he's talking about as a fellow weeb i know what the fuck he's referencing mm -hmm. and i think that's something again that um as i kind of tally up the reasons why i love this show that's one of those things the humor in the show is incredibly relatable and i have some examples of that coming up and i appreciate that it's set in like modern day Tokyo, like the type of Tokyo that we have been to. I mean, you said it yourself that when you went to Harajuku, it looked and felt the exact same as what you saw in the show. And the humor in the show is the same way. Like this is, it's, it's written in our day and age for us. And I, I like that and I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. My biggest question from this episode is why Sukuna is interested in Fushiguro and his abilities. Obviously, he's told us nothing about that, so we're all kind of in the dark. But I'm so curious to know because typically it's the main character that someone's fascinated with or wants to know more about. But Fushiguro is like a main character, but he's kind of like a, a secondary main character. So the fact that he is the target of interest for Sukuna is really cool, and I cannot wait to find out more about that. So moving on with episode seven, Assault. Captain Magma uses his Krakatoa moves against Mojo Gojo, but realizes that he is no match for the OP sorcerer because of his infinity barrier. Mojo Gojo warps Yu-Gi-Oh to observe the fight, whom Lee rudely interrupted in his viewing of Lord of the Rings, as Captain Magma makes a last minute effort to use his innate domain, Coffin of the Iron Mountain, to finish off Mojo Gojo. But as with all anime schemers, Mojo Gojo lifts his blindfold to use his innate domain, Infinite Void, to incapacitate Captain Magma and chop off his head. Before they can properly interrogate him, another of Gato's henchmen, Hanami, escapes with a head to a paradise-like domain where a Shigaraki wannabe cozies up for some R&R. &R. The one thing I will say about this episode is that Gojo is OP as fuck. He is. And to use even more Harry Potter analogies... This episode kind of reminded me of Gojo being like the Dumbledore of the Jujutsu universe where he's like one step ahead of his opponent. Um, and yeah, you, you see him take down Jogo in spectacular fashion. I think it's cool that Gojo's curse ability is infinity where you never really touch him or something like that or like it slows you down before you touch him. I think that's a real life thing, isn't it? I could be wrong. If someone knows this for sure, please let us know. But 
I've learned somewhere in my lifetime that our cells never actually touch any other cells or like atoms or objects or whatever, that there's always this force. Like we, we feel like we're touching something. Like as I'm touching my phone right now, we feel that we're touching it. But on a microscopic level, there's like some sort of repelling force in between the cells and, and the atoms or whatever, where we never actually do make contact. And I wonder if that's where they got the idea for infinity or if it just coincidentally is, is a similar concept. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I noted um, is that they go into the concept of domain expansion. Um, I think Gojo, someone mentions that the most effective way to combat a domain is to create your own and kind of establish dominance. That just sounds to me like a dick slinging battle. It definitely does. <laughs> like, I don't know. This curse lore is so strange and hard for me to grasp, but that in particular is what I thought when I heard about domain expansion. It's basically whoever's more alpha in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then you get the juju stroll at the end, which was really odd, but again, it's not something that you don't really think about is where the villains do Brazilian calisthenics, and then they end up playing soccer with uh, Jogo's head after he's lost the rest of his body. Kind of like those like Easter eggs or deleted scenes you see of... of TV shows on DVD or whatever. In episode 8, Boredom, Principal Gakujanji of Kyoto's Jujutsu School arrives to Jujutsu Hogwarts and is confronted by Mojo Gojo about how fucked the Jujutsu world is while the higher-ups sit around doing nothing. Meanwhile, Kyoto students Todo and Mai, who is Maki's twin sister, arrive to tease and provoke Fushikushi and Nobara. The second years halt their fighting, and Todo, the big simp that he is, goes to a handshake event to meet idol Takada-chan. One month later, Yu-Gi-Oh! and some salaryman who sounds like Overhaul investigate a cinema where three bodies of high school students have been disfigured, and the Shigaraki wannabe lurking nearby, Mahito, is visibly confronted by another high school student. This episode was really confusing. I think this is one of those moments where the pacing jumps ahead, and you're just like, wait, what? I mean, I was like, what the fuck is happening? Who are these people? Why is this guy asking Fushiguro about his type in women? And why does this bitch have a gun? What is happening? Um, we obviously learn who these people are as the episode progresses. But I don't know. It just they came out of nowhere. And I think I had I felt the confusion that Fushiguro and Kugisaki were feeling in that moment. Yeah, I know they say that Toto played an instrumental role in some event called the Night Parade of 100 Demons. Um, where he was like dispatched to handle like this terrorist scale attack. But then they downplay that by saying he is going to go to some idol event to, to shake some celebrity idol's hand. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's simping hard for that chick. I, I But to my earlier point about just kind of dropping characters into the show and then allowing us to discover more about them, I did feel like, to be fair, at the end of the episode that I had a good grasp on these two new characters. Um, I don't fully understand them, but I feel like I get their place in the grand scheme of things, which again is, it's great. I, they didn't have to spoon feed that to me. They didn't have to like cut away and be like, so this is who this character is and here's this person's ability and here's their backstory. It's just like, here they are. You're meeting them at the same time as the two main characters and you're all just going to discover them together. Well, I wanted to note that they mentioned that Maki has no cursed energy. Is that right? 
And then yeah. her sister Mai, who is part of、um, Tokyo's school, can imbue cursed. Wait, no, sorry, I had this confused. Maki, who is part of the Tokyo school, has no cursed energy, and Mai from the Kyoto school, who is her sister, can imbue cursed energy into weapons. And I think we also learned that Mai's glasses can help her see cursed energy,、um, which gets me thinking. Like they pretty much, or I guess Maki in this sense doesn't really have. Any sort of sorcery or whatever in her, but then the school kind of still allows her to come in. Like, and they're twins. I would think if if cursed energy is innate in somebody, as Gojo revealed in an earlier episode, why wouldn't the twins both get that?、Um, I'm sure it's not something that that's like literally in your DNA, but I'm I'm wondering how. You know, if we get more of Maki's backstory, how is it that one of the twins ended up with cursed energy and the other one didn't? Yeah, just again more lore that's convoluted and confusing for me to to think about now, and hopefully we it does get addressed later on. But it is what it is. I want to take a moment though to appreciate Kugisaki.、Um, it it takes a lot for for a female character to grow on me.、Um, while they always usually do, she grew up grew on me much faster than most other female characters. I think that she is a great. Blended personality where she isn't overly girly, but still is a girl and acts very much like a girl and thinks like a girl. Because a lot of times you get、um, main characters in female main characters in anime that are like, like almost too girly, or they're really tough, but they're still like wearing sexy clothes or whatever. I just love that she's got basic clothes on and she's not super cute or anything. They establish that in the first ep- or the the episode they introduce her, and she's. She's just there, and she knows what she wants, and she's savage, and just is a badass. She gives me Mikasa vibes, I would say. Yeah, she she's not like your typical like damsel in distress that I guess you could see in an anime. Yeah, or like the tropey like waifu best girl kind of、mm-hmm. thing. Not that she's not best girl. Like I, I would say she's best girl in this show,、um, but she's not like your typical waifu. Or she's like, what's her name? Eri from Devil Is a Part Timer. Yeah. Yeah, but even then, like Eddie was still a little bit kind of cutesy and like wore a really short skirt and、mm. stuff. But like Kugisaki's skirt is really long compared to a lot of anime skirts, and like she's wearing a crop top, but she's got another shirt on underneath it. I don't know. Like I just I really like the way that they they develop this character in the direction that they went with her, and it's not like a feminist thing or anything like that. It's just it's cool to kind of see somebody who's a little more like a tomboy,、um, mm. but is still very much like. A girl, and I love in this episode the fucking clapbacks between the two girls. It's so fucking funny. I really appreciate it because I I can relate to it. And again, it is that relatable humor that they always infuse in this show. And it's when Kugisaki is arguing with Mai, right? That's Maki's sister,、mm-hmm. and she says to her that she needs more sleep because her pores are so fucking big. And then she wants to fight her for her cute summer uniform.、I'm、like this stuff is just. It's I get it. Like as a girl, like I get it. I understand this, and I think that it's it's really well done,、um, especially because it is a shonen anime. I do want to say though, when it comes to Kugisaki, that while she is useful and I think has potential, we have not seen the the true extent of her abilities. Hopefully, the tournament arc gives her a chance to prove herself, and she better pull out some clever moves because right now her personality, like I said, is is like Mikasa from Attack on Titan. 
but her abilities are like Uraraka from My Hero Academia at the moment, where mm. it's like it's useful, but can it stand on its own? I don't think so. So yeah, I'm 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 very much looking forward to the tournament arc because I want to see her really shine in that because she's a cool character. I like her a lot. Yeah, I forgot like her weapons just a fucking hammer and nail. Yeah, and then, and then she always runs doll. out of them. Yeah. Um, and quick fact check: I was mistaken. It's not Ari. It's Emmy from Devil Is a Part Oh, Emmy. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. So please don't call me out for making that mistake because I just corrected <laughs> myself. Um, so moving on to episode nine: Small Fry and Reverse Retribution. We learn more about the boy who was able to see Mahito, Yoshino Junpei, a student movie buff and bully magnet. He witnesses Mahito disfiguring some of the bullies in the cinema and asks if he is able to inherit similar power. Meanwhile, Yujio and the salaryman, Nanami Kent Overhaul, find residuals at the crime scene and fight off two nearby cursed spirits, and Yujio utilizes his divergent fist technique, which packs quite a punch. Kent Overhaul deduces that the spirits are former humans and tasks Yujio and Ichiji to track Yoshi, who they last saw at the cinema through security footage. And this is where the series introduces us to who is so far my favorite character, Nanami Kento, ex-salaryman turned sorcerer. Just because I think we relate on the level in that we both work, I guess like our full-time jobs are in the finance industry and we realize that the work is full of shit. <laughs> um, but then he turns to sorcery because he finds more fulfillment in that. And yeah, I, I feel that, man. Yeah, again, the show is super relatable. Like when he was talking about being an adult is actually like when you wake up and you find hairs on your pillow that fell out of your head or find that your favorite stuffed bread is no longer sold at the local convenience store. I'm like... I get it. Not that those two things have ever happened to me, but like I get it. Those little things in life where you're like, man, this sucks. I'm getting old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, again, this show is so relatable. And to that point, the Juju Sampo or the Juju Stroll at the end of this episode, um, I think this is the one where Nanami gets a note from Gojo and it's just got a penis in it. And I'm like, <laughs> I love that. Like, that is so fucking funny. I just, again, it's relatable. Like, who hasn't gotten a dick drawn from somebody in a note form or on a wall or on something or on your face? I don't know. Like, people do that. That's part of our our, our humor as millennials. And I, I think that it's great that they added that. I was also, like, very surprised at that. I was not expecting that. Yeah. And I just love the fact that he still wears, like, a work suit um, as if he's going to a 9-to-5 job when he's doing all these sorcery missions. Um. And one other thing I wanted to comment on is that the movie playing at the cinema is called Human Earthworm 3. And I wonder what that a ref what that's a reference to, right? Yeah, that goddamn movie. <laughs> Which, now that I think about it, it's probably a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, because we'll learn that Mahito has a certain ability which involves, like, disfiguring humans. And that's obviously the concept of human centipede, so... Yeah, don't ever watch the second one, by the way. If if anyone's watched Human Centipede 1 but hasn't watched the second, I cannot warn you enough, do not watch that movie. It was the worst decision of my life. I'll never get that time back, and it's burned in my brain forever. And that's all I'm going to say. You've been warned. I thankfully have not watched any of them, um, but I know one of my friends did, and he said like he had to just walk outside and feel the sunlight and just breathe after watching. I forgot which one it was, but... Yeah, if you can't handle that and do not watch it like I did. <laughs> um, the only other thing I want to comment on is uh, is Junpei. 
it looks like they i mean both character design and personality wise kind of to a certain degree it looks like they just plucked him right out of devil as a part-timer he looks and kind of is just like lucifer from that show mm. i mean the hairstyle and like the face is like identical to me so yeah every time i see him on screen i'm like oh my god it's lucifer from devil's part-timer and his old story arc reminds me of like um the joker from from batman no 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 uh, <laughs> like from, from? who's who that what's his name Joaquin Phoenix's version of the Joker, just because like this guy's bullied to a pulp, and just questions his life and whether he's worth anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll we'll hear more about his story in these last four episodes. In episode ten, Idol Transfiguration, Yoshi is continually taunted at high school and confides his thoughts in a seemingly manipulative Mahito. Later on, Yoshi nearly attacks one of the high school teachers for misinterpreting his relationship with his bullies, but Yujiro arrives to defuse the situation and determine if Yoshi holds cursed energy. Meanwhile, Kent Overhaul confronts Mahito in an intense sewer battle, and since he was supposed to clock out by 6pm but the battle continues raging on, Kent Overhaul wraps his necktie around his hand and enters overtime. This episode contained a lot of philosophizing. Um, there was a discussion of the difference between love and indifference. Um, I think that was more for just Yoshino self-fulfilling himself as like a real big emo. Um, he is emo, isn't he? Yeah. Like straight up. Yeah. He has the, the fucking hair over his one eye. Um, and then Mahito kind of compliments that with his philosophy on, like when he's battling Kento, like which came first, the body or the soul. But yeah, if someone else can make sense of this whole, of these discussions in this episode, please let me know because I don't know. It just did not make sense to me, but they just put it in here to establish again, the logic and reasoning um, in Yoshino's mind. And I guess in Mahito's mind. Also, Mahito just explains his MO way too much in this scene. And to extent, Kento too, which is another anime trope that I, I don't know, I'm not too fond of in, in this case, where they have to explain what their powers are or what their techniques are. It did feel different um, because, again, like this show is one that so far has allowed the audience to discover things on their own. They just kind of spoon-fed all of that, and it was like a lot to process. Yeah. Again, that just builds into like this lore. All this lore is just too confusing. I need to look at the wiki or whatever. In episode 11, Nero Minded, Kent Overhaul uses overtime to unleash his convoluted ratio technique, Collapse, causing the sewer to crumble around them and allowing him to retreat. Meanwhile, Yujiro bonds with Yoshi over their knowledge of movies and is invited over to dinner by Yoshi's mom as Gato looks from a distance and probably exclaims, Oh yeah, it's all coming together. Later that night, Yoshi's mom is gored by an unknown cursed spirit, and Mahito in convinces Yoshi that his high school bully is at fault, forcing Yujiro to confront Yoshi at the school as the League of Cursed Villains had planned all along. So here we get more um, insight into the difference the differences in the mindsets of Itadori and Junpei. Itadori sees value in every single life and wants to save everyone, whereas Junpei sees no value in any life and just wouldn't care if everyone died, maybe except for his mom. Um, 
that's a really cool dynamic, but I'm not as compelled by that as, again, Itadori versus Sukuna. I think it's more like when two personalities are very different. I, I like seeing that play out because you never really know kind of what they're going to decide to do in that moment um, or against one another. But here it's more like their their philosophy in life is is what's opposite. And it's like, well, that's their driving force behind every decision they make. Like I know if there's a situation, I can probably call what Itadori, Itadori is going to choose to do versus what Junpei is going to do because they're, again, their philosophy is what drives the choices that they make as characters. So I find the Itadori-Sukuna relationship way more interesting than the Itadori-Junpei relationship. I guess here, um, this episode does provide more context to um, what Yoshino was talking about in the previous episode. And yeah, here, like the dynamic, I think, is not for us to understand like the relationship between Yuji and Yoshino. Um, Because like you said, Yuji and Sukuna is more... um, of a focal point. Um, but I think here, like when Yuji tells him, like he would refuse to like kill someone in his job as a jujutsu sorcerer, cause it would inf- interfere with his interfere with his view of life. Um, I think it's just meant for Yoshino to kind of have a, a change of face in terms of like what he's viewing out of life and not wanting to, to taint his own soul by tr- trying to kill someone, even if it's someone that bullies him like often another thing that's revealed in this episode i think if i understood it correctly is that the villains are the ones that actually planted the finger at the juvenile detention center um and that it wasn't as gojo um as he theorized was the the doing of the the jujutsu leaders you know trying to get rid of of itadori Mm -hmm. um so unless those leaders and the villains are working together at some level I'm really intrigued by this because that means Gojo, who has had the upper hand in everything, he's been right in everything, is for the first time wrong. And he doesn't even realize it. So I hope in the second half they address this more because I'm curious to know how someone that talented and skilled can get out of a situation like that. And if he'll be able to pick up on that sooner than later that he's wrong and that it's actually another group that was behind that. Yeah. In episode 12, To You Someday... Despite Kent Overhaul's objections, Yujiro proceeds to confront Yoshi and battles both his philosophies and his jellyfish Shikigami Moondregs. They nearly have a heart-to-heart moment until Mahito crashes the party and transforms Yoshi into a disfigured spirit to attack Yujiro. Enraged and out for blood, Yujiro tries to summon Sukuna to aid him in taking down Mahito, but the demon refuses. Yujiro goes Super Saiyan on Mahito anyways, and he in return tries to transfigure Yujiro but Sukuna sternly warns him to fuck off. Kent Overhaul intervenes in time, and seeing his effectiveness against Mahito, decides to team up with Yujiro to exercise the discount Shigaraki once and for all. This episode left me with a lot of questions. Minor questions, but questions nonetheless. So the first one is, why didn't Sukuna accept such an advantageous pact with Itadori? I mean, Itadori said, I will literally do anything if you just save Junpei. My guess is maybe because he's already in a pact with Itadori from the earlier episode, but it's not really addressed. So that's one question I have. The next question I have is why, what is his name again? The main villain? Mahito. Mahito. Why Mahito bleeds red when so far, I think all of the other curses have bled blue or purple. 
I could be wrong. Maybe I overlooked it. Maybe some of them do bleed red. But that's one thing that stuck out to me right away is that when he had that nosebleed, it was red. And I'm like, is he partially human? Is that why his whole concept, his whole goal is to save humanity in, in his eyes? And then the last question that I have is around Junpei and his curse. How the hell did Mahito give him that curse? Can can you do that? I mean, I know that Itadori inherited his by consuming one of the fingers, but like, how did Mahito give Junpei a, a curse? Like, did did he have that innate ability and not realize it, and Mahito help him help him to realize that, or did he eat something from Mahito, which is weird, but. I don't know. That's another question I have. I don't know if that'll ever be addressed, but I am curious to know how he actually gave that per um, gave Junpei a curse. Because then I'm thinking, poor Maki over here doesn't have any curse abilities, and she could probably benefit from someone giving her a curse because she seems pretty talented. I feel like that might have happened um, off screen in an earlier episode. Um, I got more battle of philosophy in this episode too, where. Like, Yoshino poses the question, like, what is the point of indiscriminate salvation? But Yuji refutes that by saying, like, when Yoshino says that the human heart is a delusion, can you say that in front of her, implying um, Yoshino's mother? Because he knows, like, Yoshino's, like, his mother is probably one of the few people that Yoshino cares about. Um, and it was interesting that they were trying to have, like, a heart-to-heart after they battled it out uh, in this in the hallway of the school and then Mojito just comes in and ruins that moment because you you feel like Yoshino was so close to being redeemed in that moment and then that's just ripped away from Yuji and to kind of drive the point further you get a, a quick visual of Yoshino had he joined the um, first years at the Jujutsu high school um, so it it kind of rationalizes why Yuji goes berserk and exclaims to Mahito, like, I will kill you, even though we know, kind of like Batman, like Yuji has this, this one rule of not killing anyone and, and just striving to save others, but he's like at the breaking point when he he sees uh, Yoshino transform into the figure and I, I guess pass away. I get that. Um, I get that that was like a big thing. Like he, that's a, a very unique mindset for him to be in because he's a very caring person who wants to save everyone. But he's saying that he's going to kill a curse. He's killed like a thousand curses. I mean, not a thousand, but he's killed a bunch of curses. So I think it's kind of easy mm-hmm. for him to be like, I'm going to kill you. I think the, to your point, the more important moment that, or the more important takeaway in that moment is that Itadori has this mindset of wanting to actively kill something versus like save somebody from something else. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I should overlook the fact that he's saying, I'll kill you to a curse. Like, yes, that's your job is to kill this curse, like exercise this curse, get rid of it. Um, but I, yeah, I get the whole point is to say that like he's at his breaking point, as you mentioned. Yeah, because again, his, his prime directive is to help others. It, like his grandpa didn't say kill people. <laughs> and we arrive at the last episode, number 13, titled Tomorrow. The dynamic duo teams up against Mahito, who throws disfigured spirits at them and notes that they will not kill the former humans. When they find the right moment to attack him before he is able to transform, Mahito calls out domain expansion, self-embodiment of perfection, seals Kent overhaul inside, and leaves Yujo out of the realm, which basically, basically signals that Kent overhaul is fucked. We get a little backstory on the ex-salaryman and his intent to find a higher purpose in life in returning to sorcery, but before he takes his final bow, 
Yujiro busts into the domain and prompts Sukuna to take down Mahito for fucking around and finding out. A weakened Mahito escapes into the sewers and ponders on the strength of Sukuna in bringing curses back to supremacy. We see the aftermath of Yoshi's death on his high school and on Yujiro and Kent overall, as the former vows to not lose a battle like that again until he and Sukuna are permadead. So there's a lot that I want to mention about this episode. Um, first off, Sukuna almost killing Mahito was great. And I just love in general that he has no interest in Mahito. Because Mahito's whole thing is like, we got to get Sukuna on our side. League of Villains, blah, 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 blah. I keep saying League of Villains. Obviously, that's my hero. But that's, what, that's the vibe I get from them. Um, and he twice pisses off Sukuna. And so Sukuna comes in with the alpha move and just throws a huge wrench in his whole plan. And I just think that's that's so cool because they're both, I don't know, like I feel like they both could be on the same side. They both have the same goal, right? But mm-hmm. Sukuna is so prideful and he's so above all the other curses that he's just like, nah, I don't need you. Don't fuck with me again. Do not touch me again. Yeah, because they established that he is the king of curses. So like he can do whatever he wants. Like he doesn't have to play into whatever Mahito's game is. And that just establishes Sukuna as like, it puts him on a whole different level from all the other villains that we've seen so far, which again, in general, I don't really care too much about these villains. They just kind of plop them in there and they didn't really give me a real reason to want to hate them other than, yeah, I feel bad for like the people that he's transfigured. Um, but other than that, I'm like, I'm not super interested in that. I'm still more interested in Sukuna. Like he is the way more compelling villain to me and mm-hmm. he's barely done anything in this show so far. Yeah, I would say like, you only really see him do anything in these last couple episodes um, because when he establishes the pact with Yuji, that was like however many episodes ago, and you don't see them kind of interact until this part of the story um, as they take down Mahito. Um, So that's one thing that I'm hoping we'll see more of in the second half of the series, Um, but we're just getting a taste of it here. The other thing I wanted to comment on is Nanami almost dying. Um, I thought he was going to die because they gave us his backstory. And in anime, that's usually a sign that someone's going to die. You get their backstory and then goodbye. But thank God he didn't. I know. His backstory was great, though. And semi-spoilers, actually kind of big spoilers for anyone who has not watched JoJo Part 4. You've been warned. His backstory reminds me of Yoshikage Kira because he's blonde and Kira is blonde. Um, they both wear suits. They both want to live a quiet life away from kind of the the thing that they have the special ability in, so jujutsu or stands. Um, they just want to be, you know, salarymen in, in Japan. Um, they both have a cute girl that they're interacting with, and they're sandwiches, which just reminds me of Kira and the sandwich and the hand that he uses. So I just kept getting Kira vibes the whole time we were watching his backstory. (laughs) Yeah, and then you start to see, like, Kento getting less fulfillment out of this, like, mundane, ordinary life. I think the one scene that sticks out the most is where he's training that newbie at the investment job, and it's almost like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um... And then he goes back to the bakery and notices the curse that's sitting on the bakery staff's shoulders. And like he dispenses it, but the the fact that she went out to thank him like gives him like a renewed sense of, of his own purpose in life. 
And it's only to kind of quote Itadori in one of the earlier episodes. It's something that only he can do, which I know literally is not the truth. There's other people out there who can see curses and who can use jujutsu, but it's something that he's he's of the rare kind that can actually do something, mm-hmm. even this small, this mundane, to help somebody who literally can't do anything for themselves because they don't even realize what's happening. Um, and just she's so appreciative of that. I yeah that struck a chord with me I completely understand why he left jujitsu and then I completely understand why he went back to it yeah because work is shit it it is shit (laughs) (laughs) I do have one question though Itadori says that he killed a person who did he kill I don't get it did he was he talk because if he was talking about those three transfigured curses that Mahito um told to go kill him there was three of them, so why wouldn't he be like, I killed three people? But he said, I think he said, I killed a person, if I'm remembering it correctly. And I'm just like, who? Who did you kill? You didn't kill anybody. Was it the one that was holding the boy hostage? Because remember, they, they were commenting that the that curse was sentient. So I, I feel like that might be one of the disfigured spirits that Mahito sent out oh. to challenge them. It, yeah, actually, it, you might be right. Because I do remember in that episode, and I don't know if it was that exact curse or if it was a different one, but I noted that like these curses that have been, or these people who have been transfigured into curses, there was one curse early on that was like speaking a weird phrase, like, do you want fries with that? Or something like that, mm-hmm. which was like super odd. I didn't understand it at the time. But now thinking back on that, that was a human who got transfigured. So, okay, maybe maybe that's what he's talking about. That makes sense. Because I was like, who who did you kill? Did I miss something? You didn't kill anybody. Yeah, if, if I'm wrong, someone out there, please please let us know. Uh, the last Juju stroll I wanted to comment on is where we see the first-year students, or I guess first- and second-year students eating shabu-shabu, and Maki comments on Kushiguro's meatballs being delicious, and he says that it was thanks to Yuji, and they have a moment of reflection, or I guess like an immemorium for him. But then they cut to Gojo and Yuji having their own shabu shabu, and you, you see Yuji sneeze because I guess the Japanese superstition is that if you sneeze, someone is talking about you. Yeah. Um, it's a very again sitcomy scene, but it brings into light something that I am curious to see in the second half of the series is like when will the students find out that Yuji is alive? And how are they going to react to that? I know. I'm, I'm really excited for that. I'm also wondering how long has he been in hiding? I know there was like a one month time skip. Um, so it's been at least a month. But in total, I have no clue just because the pacing again can be a little wild in this show. But I'm curious to know exactly how long the time span is between when he died to when the students realize he's still alive. Yeah. Last thing for this episode, before we we go into our final thoughts on this first half, is around Junpei himself. So is he for real dead? Like, do we really think he's dead? Did his transfigured cursed self actually get killed? Or was it just like laying there in the school? Yeah, that's what I was wondering too, because in I guess the epilogue of the episode, we see Yoshi's high school um, taking a survey on I think like bullying or having experienced bullying. And then you see the teacher, the, the fat-ass teacher, uh, confront one of his bullies um, and says to him, like, like you caused Yoshino to move away. Yeah. And that's confusing to me. Yeah. So I don't know if um, the jujutsu sorcerers or whomever had to concoct a story. Um, so that because, like, like we said, we, we're not sure if people are people in the real world are aware of these curses. 
Um, so I, I feel like the sorcerers had to come up with a story to explain Yoshino's disappearance. So I don't know if it, he truly did move away or if it's just a ruse to cover up the fact that he passed away as a, as a disfigured spirit. But did he actually pass away though? Like did his cursed self get killed? I remember he was laying in the hallway and he like called out Yuji's, uh, called out Itadori's name when he said Yuji. Um, but I don't recall, and it could just be me missing this, but I don't recall him actually dying. And the reason I bring this up is because in most things, anime and beyond, unless you actually see somebody die, they there's a chance that they aren't dead. I mean, granted, Itadori is an exception because we did see him die technically, but he still came back to life. Um, but in this in this instance, I'm just wondering because the opening has that picnic scene where they specifically zoom in on Junpei and Itadori sitting next to each other laughing. Junpei is wearing a school uniform and they had him in there from the very first episode, I'm pretty sure. So I'm like... Is this just a hint that at some point, like, I don't know, I mean, this is like all headcanon maybe, um, that maybe they, they grab Junpei as a curse, they're going to hang on to him and they try to find a way to reverse these transfigured curses back into humans and he's kind of like the guinea pig for that so they can try to save him at the same time. I'm just not totally convinced that he's dead. Uh, there's just something there I'm like, um, I, I feel like he's going to come back somehow. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, if I remember, there was a shot in this episode where it kind of lingered on his disfigured body for a second. And I thought it was, you know, suddenly going to start twitching or or resurrect or whatever. Um, but the fact that it lingered on him for a little bit was, was kind of suspicious. So who knows, maybe he will uh, come back and play a role. Or maybe that that's the last we'll see of Yoshino Junpei. Yeah, maybe he is permadead. Maybe. But in general, his character... I, I didn't mind watching him, but at the end, I was just like, man, Junpei's a little bitch. Like, I feel bad for him that he was bullied and that his mother was killed because of, like, the villains. But who doesn't have the intuition, the, the foresight or whatever, to realize that a curse telling him that killing is okay isn't actually a quote-unquote good person? Like, he actually, like, stops Itadori from doing anything to Mojito and says, no, he's a good person. Like... Who puts that together? What kind of logic is that? Like, yes, it's okay to kill people. Please go ahead and kill people. And then also thinks that that person is a good person. I just, to me, I was like, that's crazy. That is crazy, dude. I don't understand that. I mean, I can kind of understand it because Yoshino was probably at the lowest point in his life. And Mahito was one of the few people um, before Yuji came along to to really uh, comfort him um, in his time of need. True. But he does have a sense of right and wrong. I mean, he was bullied by people who treated him like shit, and he knew that that was wrong, right? But and I think he, he was just playing so much on that emotion of, like, confronting his bullies, and Mahito was just feeding that into him. Yeah, and maybe just the fact that he was nice to him. He mm-hmm. con- he considered someone who's nice to him, regardless of their motives, as being a good person. I just To me, I was like, yeah. man... You dumbass kid. No, like, yeah. Ugh. He came to that realization like pretty late, and then obviously that that cost him a human body. It cost him his mom and oh, like, yeah, everything. But I don't know. We'll see. And I, again, I I don't hate Junpei. I'd I'd be happy if he came back. Um, but man, in that moment, I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me, kid? Like, what the fuck, dude?" Yeah. So now that we have discussed the first thirteen episodes of Jujutsu Kaisen. We'll go ahead and into our final thoughts. So what did you think of this first half and what are you looking forward to in the second half? I thought the first half was awesome. 
Um, I I love the show. I don't know. I think it has everything in it that reminds me why I love anime. It has all the pieces of anime that I enjoy from different types of anime, kind of all blended into one. The humor is spot on. It's not over the top or try hard. It's all relatable. The action is really entertaining, very well done in terms of the way that it's animated and just stunning to look at. Um, the characters are very different, but all very compelling and, you know, characters that I want to know more about besides the villains. I'm, I'm still kind of lukewarm on them. And yeah, I mean, I was hooked episode one. I just think it's, it's hitting all the right marks for me. And I think I'm most excited about the second half, um, in terms of learning more about the world of Jujutsu and kind of getting some of these, these moments of confusion kind of clarified, um, but yeah, I think there's a lot to look forward to. And I just want more Sukuna. Like, Sukuna is really cool to me. He's he's probably one of the characters I love the most. I would say Itadori is my favorite so far. Kugisaki is awesome. But Sukuna is, like, the one that I'm I'm itching to see more of because he hasn't gotten as much screen time as I had hoped. But what about you? Yeah, some similar sentiments. Um, as I said in the beginning, it's a good show. But I think it's, it's almost like a check-the-box anime like you said, it, it covers a lot of what you would expect in an anime, but I think that's both a blessing and a curse, no pun intended, because um, I feel like the show, because of that, the show doesn't stick out to me as much as other anime um, in the shonen genre that we've watched. Um, and again, as I've said throughout the synopses, the curse lore can feel very convoluted and overwhelming at times. But I would love to see more of the relationship and the dynamic between Yuji and Sukuna, which, again, we only really got a glimpse of um, in these last couple of episodes. But it feels like it's something that's going to be as important, again, to make the same analogy as Harry Potter and Voldemort. And I'm curious to know if there's any significance in Yuji's parentage that the grandpa had mentioned but conveniently left out. Um, the very first episode. Um, I think the second part is going to focus on, again, another anime trope of the tournament arc, which is cool and all, but I just hope, it again, it presents something more interesting and not something that we've seen before, kind of like My Hero's tournament arc. No fillers, please. If it's really a 24-episode series, like in total, like I read on Wikipedia, we don't need fillers. Like there, That's not enough episodes to... to justify filler like mm -hmm. give us what we need because 24 is very finite and there's 12 sukuna fingers out there i think so they got to cover that in however many episodes yeah are left in this series or or season or whatever and that wraps up episode 24 of Strictly Anime. New episodes premiere every other Monday at 9 a.m. Central. You can follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series. Check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com, where you can reach out to us to share your thoughts on the anime that we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. Too much lore.